You've heard the words from Psalm chapter 1. Some years after those words were written and became the prayers of God's people, there was a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. Prophet of exile, a prophet to Israel in some of its most darkest, in some of its darkest days, who worried that that they might forget where true life comes from. And so he revisited those words from Psalm chapter one and added his own little gloss on them. And I invite you to hear those words again and hear Jeremiah's distinction from chapter 17, verses seven and eight. Happy are those who trust in the Lord, who rely on the Lord. They will be like trees planted by the streams whose roots reach down to the water. They won't fear drought when it comes. Their leaves will remain green. They won't be stressed in the time of drought, nor shall they fail to bear fruit. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I do not mind that the month of November means that we are done with the pumpkin patch. It's a wonderful ministry by which people throughout our community know us. We raised over $18,000 for youth missions. And I myself thoroughly enjoyed the crowds that we saw, those in our community and in our church who came and walked and spent a great deal of time there. Though I will not miss taking a couple shifts in the pumpkin patch every week, I did enjoy my time there. The best thing about working in the pumpkin patch is the people that you get to spend your time with while you do. The second best thing about working in the pumpkin patch is the satsuma tree. I love satsumas, always have. Second sermon I ever preached after seminary as an associate at St. Francis United Methodist Church in Cary, North Carolina, was introducing the people of that foreign land to the whole concept of satsumas and satsuma trees. I preached about the satsuma trees that grew on my grandfather's farm and about how I consider a satsuma the most perfect jewel of a fruit that God ever made. So accessible, so delicious, so easy to peel. Whenever I would sit in the patch, I'd have that beautiful tree right there in front of me with its dense patchwork of, of green leaves overlapping one another, its branches heavy with fruit. It was a good year for the satsuma tree over there in the patch. So many fruits hanging off of it, each one a little jewel, and every time I walked out there, it was bearing more fruit. That little tree over there, it is just so Fruitful, so effective at what it does. If the point of a fruit tree is to bear fruit, that tree gets results. We don't publish reports on our Satsuma tree in the Dolphin Way Journal, but if we did every month, it would be one of Dolphin Way's top performers. It just cranks out those fruits. It doesn't bother anybody. It's an all-star tree, an ideal team player. It doesn't cause any problems, just does good stuff. My third or fourth day sitting across from that beautiful tree, after picking my third or fourth satsuma off its limbs, I was just so impressed by its productivity 
that I went over to the tree and I asked it, So, Satsuma, what's your secret? How'd you get to be so effective at what you do? The tree just stood there. Didn't say nothing. No freebies for me, no trade secrets, no competitive advantage that it was going to give away to me. I tried a different tack. I asked, what did you major in in college to become so good at what you do? Did you study the right things? What books have you been reading? What conferences did you attend to become so good at being a satsuma tree? What gets you motivated these days? Tree did not even flinch or acknowledge me. Just stood there. Thought maybe this is not the most reflective tree. Maybe it doesn't do a lot of thinking. Most, maybe it's mostly about a, a mind-body connection. So I asked about its fitness routine. How do you stay fit these days? Pilates, yoga, heavyweight training? And the tree just stood there. It was more than a little rude. I gave up on talking to the Satsuma and decided just to watch. To pay attention every time I drove up to the office, drove past the pumpkin patch, I was dead set on catching it in the act of producing so much good fruit. See, how it does it? How does it work so hard? For an entire month now, no matter when I stop by, all that tree does is stand there. I bet you knew this already. But it took me a while to figure it out. The only reason that Satsuma tree is so fruitful is that it was planted in the right place. Its roots are in the soil of Mobile, Alabama, where earlier this year we had 79 consecutive days of rain. That is what is the secret to its success. Here in Mobile, we have a lot less trouble getting plants to grow than we do keeping them from taking over. Can anyone else's backyard testify? The secret of the Satsuma is not about any life hacks or productivity or leadership books or having the right personal mission statement. No, its secret is that it just stands there, planted, in season and out of season, in good soil that is well watered. In Mobile, our water falls from the sky, but in the nation of Israel, it comes from the rivers. The best soil in the nation of Israel, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, and still today, the best soil is at the riverside. And this is our third week preaching about the spiritual significance of the geography of the Bible. Two weeks ago, we visited the mountaintop. Particularly, we visited Mount Hermon, which gathers all the snow and all the dew and all the rain that falls in the north on its southern slope where it runs down and becomes the River Jordan. And we said that the mountaintop is where God forges community, gathering all our little individualities into the flow of the river of life. The mountaintop is a set-apart place with beautiful views. It is wonderful to visit the mountaintop but the problem is there is nothing to eat there. The water just runs right off the mountain face, leaving rocky soil behind. The same thing happens in the ravines and the gorges that we visited last week, the places that the Scripture refers to as the shadow valleys. These places hold even less water than the mountains, with the added trouble that the shadow valleys are lonely 
and dark. The mountains are a fine place to visit, and the shadow valleys are unavoidable. But the riverside, that's where we were made to live. In Israel, just like in almost every civilization in almost every era, the first and the foremost important cities sprang up alongside the river valleys in those broad, fertile plains alongside the river Jordan and its tributaries. And it wasn't just the drinking water that the people needed. They needed the flow of fresh water so that they could dig irrigation canals that would provide water and provide nourishment to the crops in the seasons of drought. And the closer you were to the riverside, the less work you had to do. You did not even have to dig the canals, but you could count on the annual flooding to deposit fresh water, a new rich soil into the places where the food grew. On the banks of the rivers, the soil was nourished every time the river would overflow its banks and flood the fields with fresh silt. And that continual flow of water kept it fresh. In the south of Israel, the Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea, which you can tell from its name is no place to live. There's no outlet in the Dead Sea. The water just sits there until it evaporates, becoming too salty for anything to live. If you go to the Dead Sea and gather the water in your hand and pour it out, it'll be more gelatinous than liquid. The continual flow of the water, the movement of the water, brought life and freshness to the valleys where the Israelites grew the olive groves and the wheat fields and the orchards of figs and dates and all the fruits that make life sweet. And so the psalmist says, happy are those who trust in the Lord, who rely on the Lord. They will be like trees planted by the streams, whose roots reach down to the water. They won't fear when the drought comes and their leaves will remain green. They will not be stressed in the time of drought, nor shall they fail to bear fruit. All they have to do is stand there. All they have to do is put down roots and stand there. One of the things I've never gotten over about God is how he stands with us. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but we are the problem in our relationship with God. Theologian Reinhold Niebuhr once said, original sin is the only Christian doctrine that can be proved by science. There's no gift from God that we cannot abuse or ignore or misuse or turn into an idol. God made us in his own image, made us for flourishing, and he made the world to be fruitful and to multiply his glory. The book of Genesis describes those early days of creation as being like a garden full of fruit trees watered by three glorious rivers in which everything there was for our good. But as we have managed to mess up over and over and over again, we could probably understand if God had simply washed his hands of us at some point and said, I'm moving on. God could have crafted a new mission statement, left us in a hell of our own making. But instead of moving on, God planted himself among us. God put down roots. 
And we call these roots covenants. Perhaps you've heard of them. They are the promises that God makes and the promises that he will never break. The covenants are God's way of saying that he is not moving on. I'm not looking for greener pastures, he says. A covenant is God's way of saying, I'm just going to stand here. God's first covenant was with humanity after the flood. Never again will I destroy the earth. Never again. I'm not moving on. I'm with you for the long haul. He rooted his purpose in us. When we rejected him, rather than rejecting us, God drew closer, put down deeper roots, sank himself more deeply into the creation. He made a covenant with the Israelites. Within all the humanity he hoped to save, God chose a particular people, a particular nation. And when they rejected him, rather than rejecting Israel, God drew even closer and chose a single family within the nation, the royal family of David. And when not even that single family could keep faith with God, God intertwined himself with us more deeply than we ever imagined. He rooted his divinity entirely in our humanity becoming fully God and fully man. And in Jesus, God is saying, I will stand with you forever. He refuses to move on. Refuses to try a different business plan. God has planted himself and put down roots. And with every baptism, with every person reborn by water and the spirit, God is promising again that he will never leave us. He is nourishing his covenant with living water, planting his eternal purpose for all creation and us. And when you think about it that way, a lot of our striving seems a little silly, doesn't it? A lot of our most desperate, most earnest, best intentions begin to make about as much sense as talking to a satsuma tree. All our strategies for effectiveness, all our spinning and our striving and our ceaseless sense that we're supposed to maximize our lives, that we perhaps might justify ourselves if we just did a little bit more. What if all that is just a part of us that rebels at being planted. What if you'll never find a higher purpose for your life than to worship God? Would that be enough? What if you sank your roots deep down into that and trusted everything else to flourish in its season? What if you allowed yourself to be planted? I think of the great Saint Benedict of Nursia, who was trying to create a Christian community that could survive and preserve the wisdom of God as the known world collapsed with the fall of the Roman Empire. Old Benedict formed the first monastery, and all those first Benedictines had only three vows that they made to one another. They said, if we keep these three promises, we believe it can change the world. And of those three vows, one of their vows was a vow of stability. Can you imagine hinging the preservation of the church, the change of the world on a vow of stability? 
It was a promise they made that wherever they planted a monastic community, they would not move it to another place in order to find greener pastures. And it was a promise for all those who committed themselves to one particular community that they would not leave that community to chase a better one. I think of that glorious vow of stability every time I remember Dothanway's own deliberate and intentional choice decades ago to stay here at the corner of Dauphin and Catherine at a time when other churches were chasing growth by moving elsewhere. Through the 80s and 90s, that was the secret of church growth. Move your church to where the new neighborhoods are being planted. But this church understood what Wendell Berry once wrote, that it is better to grow like a tree than a fire because trees grow by contributing to the health of the places they are planted while a fire consumes and destroys. We preferred to grow like a tree, a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit at just the right time and whose leaves do not fade. I think back to this last January when we hosted our Raising Young Disciples event Woods and I and Brittany and Kat, we spent a lot of time ahead of that event thinking about what word of encouragement and of challenge could we share with the families of every child from age 18 and younger here at Dauphin Way. And to all those who showed up, we, we shared some of what we'd learned by studying the work of Notre Dame sociologist Christian Smith. In 30 years of studying how families pass down their faith to new generations, there are two things that Christian Smith says matter more than any other. It matters how often a child's parents attend church. And it matters if they talk about God at least once a week outside of the church service. Those two things, parental attendance and family conversation, matter more than what church you attend or your parenting style or even how often the child attends worship themselves or Christian education. All those other things, they matter a little bit, but what matters most is how often parents attend and whether they speak of God. And so we hear this word from the Psalms that says a truly happy person loves the Lord's instruction and they recite God's instruction day and night. And we discover that just the casual Tuesday conversation on the way home from school that says, well, what do you think God was up to today? In that hard time, in that good grade, those are deep roots. I think of all the names we will read in just a moment. I think of all the sermons I've heard Kathy preach this year. If you haven't been to a funeral where Kathy has preached and eulogized those of our family of God, you owe it to yourself to do so. She has the unique gift to bear witness to saints who have deep roots through long knowledge. Saints who planted themselves in a church that saw them through every season in their lives, seasons of tragedy, seasons of new life, seasons of activity, and seasons of rest. Think of every time they had the chance to move on to give up. Instead, they drew closer. They planted themselves in God's covenant. And I think of the sermons and the funerals that I've preached this year. I've preached four this year. My first four since I got to Dauphin Way. 
Because as long as we had Steve Dill with us, no one needed me to do anything but pray or read. The man preached the best funeral sermons I ever heard. Not only because he had planted himself beside God's people, but because he had planted himself deep in God's word and God's purpose. He planted the roots so deep that they went right down to the water. And I think how we all know that as on that Friday when he nodded his head and entered his rest, the leaves of his faith were still green with new life and they were still bearing fruit. Like a tree replanted by streams of water, which bears fruit at just the right time and whose leaves do not fade. Whatever they do prospers, says the psalm. And I have to tell you, that last line is the hardest one for me to believe. Whatever they do prospers. Because even the greatest of saints I've known have had their heartbreaks and their losses. Whatever they do prospers. I think the only way that can be true is if heaven measures fruitfulness a little bit differently than we do. There is something about heaven that we have trouble seeing. We have a hard time keeping in mind what truly matters. But the saints have seen, and they know what truly matters. And I think of all the times that I have heard well-meaning, well-intentioned Christians say of our departed loved ones that they live on with us in our hearts. And I think how that is not exactly what Christians believe. But instead we believe that those who have departed us reside with their spirit in the presence of Christ's body, while we and our bodies reside in the presence of Christ's Holy Spirit. But then we insist that when we come to this table, there, there is a mystic sweet communion of body and spirit, the visible and invisible. There we touch and we taste and we draw near to what really matters. And Christ's bodily presence, which is with the saints, is somehow with us. And our spiritual presence, which, with which the Holy Spirit is always with us, is somehow present to the saints. And in that moment, we sink our roots deeper into the living waters. And so as we draw near once more to the covenant, where Christ draws near to us, I think a certain Satsuma tree would tell us if it could to plant ourselves in that promise. To plant ourselves in the worship of God. To plant ourselves in the body of Christ. If old Satsuma could answer all my questions, I think he'd say, just stand there. And I wonder, Where is your life planted? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.